Against all odds, the Phoenix Suns have assembled a super team. On today's episode of Locked On Suns, how do they compare to past super teams over the past 15 or so years in league history? And what can we learn from those past examples? Let's go. You are Locked On Suns, your daily Phoenix Suns podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We're back. This is Locked On Phoenix Suns. We're part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brendan Clean, a credentialed media member covering the Suns for the past six seasons, a writer at suns.com, and the host of the Just Basketball Show, wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you for making Locked On Suns your first listen. Happy Thursday. We're free and available every single place that you get your podcasts. All you got to do is search Locked On Suns wherever you listen and watch. Free and available everywhere, YouTube included. Get this show in your feed every single Monday through Friday throughout the offseason and beyond. Become an everydayer. Get locked on to your favorite team, the Phoenix Suns, every weekday from here on out. You can also drop a comment in the YouTube section below if you'd like to engage with the community of 5,000 plus, but really we're almost to 5,500 here in the YouTube subscriber. Drop a comment with if you think the Suns are a super team and who they're most similar to. That's what we're talking about today, so let's dive right into it. I went through and I looked at five previous super teams. And we're going to go through the similarities, the, the, the situations and the teams and the players that the Suns, as currently assembled, have the most direct comparisons and connections to. The groups that they're the least similar to, that maybe there's not a lot to learn from. And we'll close with just sort of what that all can teach us as we embark on this insane Fun, exciting season in Phoenix. But let's just go through them to start, all right? You know what they are. It's not like I uh, stretched out the definition of a super team or have some unique example that nobody is necessarily thinking of. I did not go back to 86 or 87 with the Celtics in Bill Walton or or anything. I I didn't throw in the Jailblazers or Clyde Drexler going to Houston or anything. Two outside the box. I really started with 07-08, which is what I think most modern NBA fans and, and anybody who kind of looks at the history of this league thinks of as the first big three. And that's really what I mean when I say super team, right? It is teams with three superstar players at least. And so the 07-08 season, of course, brings us to the Boston Celtics. They trade for Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen in the offseason. They also sign Eddie House and James Posey in the offseason. And at the deadline, get both Sam Cassell and P.J. Brown. And that is obviously what a lot of people reference as sort of the, the differentiator in their season. The turning point, the inflection point, what got them over the hump. Cassell and Brown play the 7th and ninth most playoff minutes, respectively, for this team. And uh, make a big impact in getting them the depth and veteran know-how and everything that they needed. What's a little bit unique about this Boston team is um, it was Doc's fourth season with the Celtics. So a lot of the trends that you're going to see with the, with these other teams is early on in a coach's tenure, right? Where that contributes to the learning curve that is bound to happen in any situation when it comes to championship teams and and hastily constructed teams. But in this case, Doc was in his fourth year. 
Uh, and they also got breakout seasons from both Rajon Rondo and Kendrick Perkins. I mean, that's the way to do it, right? This is this to me is is one of the best possible examples of what you can have. A promising coach with an with the history with the organization and, and with some of the players already on the roster, obviously Pierce being the other one. Trade for certain players without depleting what you are too much, right? They got Garnett and Allen without giving up their starting point guard and their starting center. That is a, a heck of an accomplishment. And then you kind of roll from there and, and, and get lucky with different signings and everything else. They end up ninth in offense, first in defense, and they win the NBA championship. We're going to fast forward from there to 2010-11. You know the deal. The Miami Heat trade for LeBron and Chris Bosh in the offseason. They also signed Mike Miller, Zadrunas Elgauskas, and Juwan Howard, guys who really are end-of-the-bench players by the time of the postseason, but nevertheless are, are added. And then Mike Bibby as the buyout guy. Everybody remembers that moment. Washed Mike Bibby, maybe not so washed, gets uh, sixth most playoff minutes for Miami that year. That was Eric Spolstra's third season with the Heat, second in offense, fifth in defense. They lose in the finals, of course, to the Dallas Mavericks. The next season, we get our beloved Steve Nash sent over to Los Angeles along with, not in the same trade, of course, uh, three weeks later, Dwight Howard, the Sports Illustrated cover. Now, this is going to be fun, right, with those guys and Pau Gasol and Kobe Bryant. They also signed Jody Meeks, who plays a lot in the regular season, not so much in the playoffs. And then uh, Coach is the interesting part of this, right? Mike D'Antoni is hired midseason. Unorthodox, not what you would want, not what you would recommend, right? And uh, obviously, as Suns fans who were paying attention back then will surely remember, um, sorry, I have it as 2011-12. It was definitely 12-13. I have it wrong in my notes. I, I promise you I know what I'm talking about. Steve Nash only plays 50 games in the regular season and two games in the playoffs in which he is not himself and not able to make a big impact. But of course, there were only four playoff games for that team. They were 10th in offense, 12th in defense during the season and get swept in the first round by the San Antonio Spurs. Then we then go to uh, our, our final two installments on this list, both of which feature Kevin Durant. Pattern, yes, maybe. Um, no, also, maybe some experience with the adjustments and uh, sacrifices and changes that come along with this whole process. I guess you could look at it uh, good or bad. Durant, David West, and Zaza Pachulia all signed with the Warriors that offseason. They're fourth, sixth, and ninth in playoff minutes respectively. So big difference makers. They also add Matt Barnes on the buyout market in season, 12th in playoff minutes, not a huge uh, impact player, but a, a, another vet. Third uh, season for Steve Kerr in Golden State. By that point, obviously, they were one and one, made the finals both years, lose in devastating fashion to the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then go ahead and get Durant. First in offense, first in defense, this first KD season, and of course, win the championship. 2020, 21 Nets is our final one. And I think it's the most similar to the Suns, so I'll speed our way through this and we can get to the, the similarities, differences, and lessons. Landry Shamit, Bruce Brown traded for in the offseason. They signed Jeff Green as well. Those are base, That's basically your playoff bench right there, those three guys. And that's even before we get to the James Harden trade, which happens in January, about three weeks into the regular season. That, of course, was the COVID year. He's your star guard. I mean, this was a year where, at, at times, we thought he might win the MVP trophy, James Harden. 
They also, in the buyout market, get Blake Griffin, Mike James, and LaMarcus Aldridge. Blake being sort of the final bench piece and honestly ended up starting quite a few games that year after they got rid of Jared Allen. Nash's first season in Brooklyn, which is an important factor here, and then first in offense, but 22nd in defense in the regular season, although worth noting, they were... They were like three points per 100 possessions better on defense. They allowed opponents to score three fewer points per 100 possessions uh, in the playoffs, which is not the normal trend, right? A lot of teams, yeah, I guess it's, I guess it can be the trend. It just depends, right? I mean, the pace slows down a lot of the time and they swept the Celtics who were in flux. Like, I I guess it sort of tracks, but still noteworthy. And then they lose in the second round in that uh, just all-time series against the Milwaukee Bucks, the team that the Suns would ultimately face in the finals. So let's do one similarity right off the top. Uh, The most kind of big picture takeaways from what matters here. I think what's, what's good is the Suns were able to trade for Beal without sacrificing too much of their depth, right? And in the case of Durant, I still don't think of that trade. I think the biggest hurt from that trade was the draft picks. Mikhail Bridges is an amazing player, but you probably were not getting Kevin Durant without including him. So that is just a given. Also, they play the same position. They do a lot of the same things. I don't think of it as too big of a hit. Cam Johnson was hurt. It's uncertain what necessarily he is going to be. I'm not trying to underestimate the player part of it. I think of the big hit as the picks. So the Suns got to Rant and Beal basically without compromising too, too much in the way of the structure of their team and their two most, I I don't want to say irreplaceable in the case of DeAndre Ayton, but he just serves such a fundamental purpose. And of course, Devin Booker. So I think that's good. And, And you can see the importance of that in the case of like Miami or the Lakers Teams that are just chewed up and spit out by the time that the trades are complete. I guess I could have put the Knicks on here with Amari Stoudemire and Carmelo Anthony. They didn't really have that third star. That's another example after the Mellow trade and everything else where you just don't have enough. The Suns have enough. They also have a balanced team, right? When you look at the Nets or even the Lakers, it just wasn't... Those teams didn't have enough on both sides of the ball in a complimentary way to win. I think the Suns do have that. So those are probably the things that I would say. They they still have a team that makes sense structurally, and it's balanced on both ends of the floor in enough of a way when you combine it with Frank Vogel that you have to feel like the Suns are likely to avoid the worst-case scenarios here. But obviously, we know how they went about filling that roster. It is very different than a team like Boston or the Warriors, for instance, and the coaching situation being another difference. So let's dive into those first. Today's show brought to you by the FanDuel Sportsbook. I mean, what really could be better this time of year? Take your first swing at betting MLB on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount. And bonus bets up to $200. That's right. Just bet. 20 bucks and you land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's 200 You can spend betting everything from the money line to the over-under to even who you think is going to win hit the first home run all on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Plus when you win, you get paid instantly. Just put it right back into your account and say, all right, that's it for today. That's 
it for this week, whatever the case is. I love betting baseball. You can go uh, stuff for the first five innings, which is always nice because you can just compare starting pitchers. You can do over-unders, which are always fun, just in terms of you get the total runs. Baseball, in terms of run lines, are often hard. This team to win by this, it's it, some of these games are so low scoring, but I love the way that they incorporate different stuff. There's no better place to bet MLB than FanDuel. Sign up today. Visit FanDuel.com slash on to get that $200 in bonus bets. That's FanDuel.com slash on. FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of Major League Baseball. Keeping it rolling. Let's talk super teams. Let's keep talking super teams, and we'll go through some of the differences here that the Suns are facing. So again, I want to go back to the Celtics because to me that is uh, the best example, right? And I, I do want to say right off the top now that I got some of the throat clearing and, and big picture stuff out of the way. I understand Bradley Beal is just frankly, plain and simple, not as good as these other players, right? When you're talking about, I mean, the case of the Warriors, the third best player is one of Draymond or Clay. Both of those guys at that point in time, much, much better than Bradley Beal. You know, uh, by the playoffs, when, when Harden and Kyrie got hurt, I guess it's a, it's not an ideal, but in that first-round series against the Celtics for the 2021 Brooklyn Nets, Bradley Beal is not as good as Kyrie Irving, who was probably their third-best guy. Nowhere, uh, I guess you could imagine him having a similar type of impact to Ray Allen, who took a big step back and had to kind of adjust his game, but I don't know if that's a perfect one-to-one for Beal either, and he's not as good as Chris Bosh or Dwight Howard or anything like that. So, I want to get that out of the way. That That is a big difference, right? I'm sure there will be people in the comments section. I, I will bet money that there will be people. The Suns aren't a super team. I get it. You know, we, we can quibble about the definition. But my point being here, three superstar players, three star, all-star, all-NBA guys. The Suns have that. Whether you think that Bradley Beal qualifies in theory or in your opinion or not, that is just a fact. He is a multi-time all-star, an all-NBA player. And that's just a fact. But back to the Celtics. Again, to me, this is just the best way to do it. And what the Suns are lacking here, and, and that's where I guess you could hit the, the Durant trade and the way that that all went down, is that they don't have Rondo and Perkins, right? They don't have those guys who are naturally young that can step up into that role. Maybe there are players you think of that way. They are not homegrown first-round picks. You know, Maybe that's Josh Okoge. Maybe that's Jordan Goodwin who can step up into that Kata bates Diop, But those are, are recent additions. Even in the case of Okogi, he was signed last year after being, you know, dis, just uh, thrown to the side by the Minnesota Timberwolves. Like, they don't have those ready-made developmental guys who are going to step into bigger roles, excel with better players around them, and everything else, right? And and I think that that is at the detriment. But uh, a difference that's positive to me is the way that they've gone about building out their depth. You know, um, they had an opportunity because of such uh, how big of a reset the past two off seasons, really, but especially this off season allowed them to do to really reimagine not only the kind of style and and fit and role of some of the players, but even the age. And that's to me, <clears throat> that's to me a, a difference between the, this this Suns team and a lot of these super teams that is a positive, all right? Because I read you some of the names. You're talking about, you know, uh, James Posey. You're talking about, you know, Mike Miller. You're talking about uh, Jody Meeks, right? Uh, even David West, Zaza Pachulia, Matt Barnes, 
Jeff Green, Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge. Like that is the pattern, right? Is that the players that you're able to get when you're shopping around on minimums and buyouts tend to be fairly young and there's just going to be a cap even if they fit really well even if they have a couple of seasons left in them in a smaller role like David West I mean he was massive for that those Warriors teams you you can't you can't deny that Mike Miller had uh, obviously some postseason moments and James Posey was uh, integral to that Celtics team winning the title but there was only so much upside that you were going to get there were only so many years that you might reasonably be able to get out of those guys whereas in this particular case, the Suns went really young. And you're able to imagine a world in which Goodwin, Bates Diop, Eubanks, even a Kogi, right? That that those players really blossom and bloom in Phoenix in a way that a, a 33-year-old veteran just is unlikely to do, right? And so that's that's promising. That's really kind of exciting, I think you would have to say, right? And so that's one. The last uh, big difference that I see here is the coaching. And of course, it's not unanimous. I, I obviously mentioned the Steve Nash, which was just a really bad situation for all parties involved. I don't know necessarily if it was the Sean Marks connection that got Steve Nash hired, if it was the the big name, if it was a great sell job by Steve Nash's agent, and he just got the itch during the pandemic to go out and try something new with his career and the Nets just ended up being the team to give him the try. I don't know, but that did not go well, and it just was the wrong year to have a, a completely green first time, no ho- no coaching experience, let alone head coaching experience type of guy come in. Uh, and then Mike D'Antoni. That would have potentially worked, right, if obviously if health allowed, but even if Mike D'Antoni had had, had a training camp and everything else, it, maybe things go differently, but he never seemed to click with Dwight or Kobe. The injuries hit team's not really set up to play how he wants them to play with Powell there as a four-man and everything, and it just never gelled. The Suns maybe don't have that ugly of a situation, but they definitely don't have the stability of Dox being in his fourth season, Spo being in his third season with the Miami Heat, and you're talking about obviously dating back almost a decade at that point of history with the franchise, just his third year in the head coaching seat, or Kerr in his third year coming off of two finals appearances and obviously some GM experience and all of that. So the Suns don't have that, but they don't have the glaring weakness at head coach either. You're kind of kind of splitting the difference, right? Frank Vogel is a very experienced guy. I don't think anybody doubts his mettle as a coach. This is his fourth stop, and he's honestly not even that old of a guy, all things considered and has the pedigree of conference finals appearances, finals appearances, and everything else. The problem is he just, he's new here too, right? And so he's only going to have one training camp to connect with even Devin Booker, who's the, theoretically, the glue that kind of holds this together. Well, not, not so much with the coach, right? So it'll be interesting. I don't know if I should call it a positive or a negative, but I can say for sure that it's... A factor and it and it and it is a a separating point from the best case scenario right all right so similarities differences let's go into what we can expect right what are the trends what are the things that you can certainly expect to see when it comes to these types of teams 
We'll get into defense, buyout guys, and more after one more quick break. Closing out the show, Super Team Pod, deep dive on the greatest experiments in recent NBA history. Uh, let's get into what we can expect, all right? Uh, and, and let's start with defense. It's got a lot, gotten a lot of conversation going this week. Uh, Zach Lowe discussed their defense in depth on his podcast, and I know Mike and Sam over at the Timeline podcast did a deep dive in their weekly show about how good the Suns' defense needs to be and how good it can be in order for them to win a title, right? And that that is one of the interesting through lines here. The Celtics, Heat, and Warriors were all top five in defense, and in the case of two of those teams, they were the best defense in the NBA, right? Uh, And then the through line is all of these teams were in the top 10 in offense, and when you take out the Lakers, who are kind of an exception to a lot of this, you're talking about top nine. So I expect the Suns to have a, a, a legitimate chance and not even a, uh, it wouldn't even be a shock, right, if, if they were the, the straight-up best offense in the entire league. Not not predicting that, but you talk about Boston, potentially, well, maybe offensively they actually might take a little bit of a step forward. I don't know. Sacramento was the best offense in the league last year. Could happen again. It'd be impossible to predict based on one year of evidence that that Kings team is going to continually just be a a powerhouse. And then the Mavs, right? Like they're always up there, but you never quite know when it comes to how Luka and Kyrie will fit in. Their roster has been remade as well. I would expect the Suns will have that in the bag. The defense is the bigger question, uh, but, but this sort of does show us because again, to me, The Brooklyn Nets are the best example, uh, the best comparison point to what the Suns are doing. Even down, frankly, to the younger depth between Landry Shamit and Bruce Brown and Joe Harris. Guys, they did have some some younger depth pieces. But defensively being the most important part to return there, the Nets were 22nd in defense in the regular season. Now, that's particularly bad. They did not have rim protection after the Harden trade because they got rid of Jared Allen and, and DeAndre Jordan just wasn't playable. And, and so that's you're just at a disadvantage there. But again, improved in the playoffs in, term, in terms of both their defensive rating, but also just where they ranked. They were not in the bottom, bottom, bottom. They were kind of in the middle in, of the pack defensively come postseason time. And I would expect something similar from the Suns, to be honest with you. I, I think it's reasonable to expect like somewhere in the 10 to 15 range defensively for this Suns team in the regular season. I think that just being disciplined, like I, I think I've made the case around how some of this could look uh, on past podcasts, just talking around this idea. And a lot of, again, this conversation has, has been happening all week online and in content that you am sure you might've consumed already. So I won't waste anybody's time, but if you just imagine that they protect the paint at a pretty high level, they clean up their transition defense. Those are two things that have gone up and down, or in the case of transition defense, been a consistent problem for the Suns under, under Monty Williams. You know, Zach Lowe pointed out just cutting down the fouling would also go a long way. If you just start to have the level of discipline and coaching and scheming that 
that that's needed. The regular season, that can go a long way. And you have veterans out there, even if they're younger veterans. You know, the top six of this team, top five at least, you know, with Eric Gordon and the and the big four, like that might be their closing lineup. And those are all guys you trust to just get the job done. So I think 10 to 15 is perfectly reasonable defensively in the regular season. And I would expect it to improve in the postseason. And there's no real evidence you need to look further than than this past playoff run, right? Where Devin Booker looked like a legitimate wing stopper and a big time turnover creator. And Kevin Durant to me is the best defensive player on this entire roster when he is engaged and deployed in, in a in a smart way and healthy enough to make those types of athletic rim protecting wing defending types of situations, right? So if you're talking about a postseason where Booker and Durant are locked in, DeAndre Ayton is still doing his thing, and maybe some of the young players have popped, or at least Vogel knows who to play and when, I could imagine a similar blueprint to that Nets squad where they're good enough in the regular season defensively and then take it up a level come playoff time when maybe even Durant at center becomes more of an option. Guys, the best players are just playing more minutes, all that stuff. You get it. So that's... uh. 1A of of what I think we can kind of learn from this, you know, I guess I could have and should have put the the LeBron Cavs in here. It just, to me, I guess Love and Beal are pretty similar, but I do think Booker is just better than Kyrie. Like, it's, that was a LeBron team with just a solid supporting cast. I'm not sure if people think of that Cleveland team as a super team, but another example of a, of a group that defensively in the regular season was just passable, right? Amazing offense, passable defense, and then in the postseason, they were able to really lean into their switching. You were getting an even more locked in and engaged LeBron on and on down the line. Another example that we can expect this team to follow. The last one is not as important, but it is uh, it is buyout players. Every single one of these teams tended to add buyout players whether that is Sam Cassell and P.J. Brown, Mike Bibby, Matt Barnes, Blake Griffin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the Suns are even more, I would bet money that the Suns add either or both of a trade deadline deal or a buyout player and or a buyout player this upcoming season because this is basically their last year to do that right we've talked about that this week already the trade exceptions that they just generated with the Sharich deal and now the Cameron Payne deal they're not going to have access to those after this season based on the second apron rules under the new CBA they are also not going to be able to sign players who made more than 12 million dollars on the buyout market now I'm going to be interested maybe someday in the near future or during the season I will do a show where I at least for one segment look back at do the buyout players who get bought out tend to actually have made more than the league average? I'm not so sure. I don't know. Maybe there will be some available to the Suns, but they they will probably be looking at it as this is one of our last years to really do that and add a difference maker. So you can bet that they will do it. And it makes sense too, right? I think it's not just sort of like the aggressiveness of ownership and all that that is a through line here, but it is also uh, evidence of the learning and feeling out process that happens, right? You add so much, you change your team so much in the summer, it's natural that by the time that the buyout deadline in, in late March rolls around that you have a better idea of what missing piece you may have when the 
playoffs start to roll around, right? We need one more wing defender. We need one more big man with, you know, the six fouls that that you can that he can use, right? In the case of the Miami Heat, they needed a playmaker. They just it was Mario Chalmers and then what, you know? I think Carlos Arroyo was on that team. Like they just needed Bibby to to dribble the ball up and make open threes at the end of the day and and that was a need and they filled it, right? So I would expect that from the Suns. Maybe it maybe it is a point guard. Maybe the 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 panic about that spot is is justified, and and the Suns go out and try to find that player. Maybe you know some of the defensively oriented guys on on the bench don't end up being able to hit shots, and Josh Okogie's not playable, and and Kata Bates Diop isn't quite uh, the the jump shot progress isn't as real as we had hoped there, you know, there's, there's scenarios and then maybe they need a wing. And so I would expect that to happen. It's, it's fun to me to to look back at this stuff. I mean, it is just, it's extra uncharted territory because the rules under this new CBA were supposed to prevent this from ever happening again. And that makes it fun and interesting in and of itself. But the reality is this is just not that common to acquire talent in this way and build a roster in this way, regardless of era or rules or what CBA it is happening under. We're talking about three CBAs that this whole era spans now. So it is clearly unique and it is clearly a pattern at the same time. It's it's rare, but there's enough of them now to, to pull from. And that's what we did today. So I hope you appreciated that. We will be back tomorrow to close out the week with Aaron Edwards talking G League, talking this Sean Marion interview that I want to get. Aaron's thoughts on and whatever other fun stuff comes out between now and about 10 a.m. tomorrow. So hit follow, subscribe, get this show, get that show in your feed as well as one every single day of the week throughout the offseason and beyond. Everywhere you listen to podcasts or watch them and I will catch you guys tomorrow.